Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, June 2nd, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is on leave. Joining us today, Washington Commentary columnist, AEI fellow, founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon and author of the brilliantly reviewed new history of American conservatism, the right Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Uh, so we are uh, fascinating uh, news crossing the wire that OPEC has agreed uh, to a, a pretty substantial increase in the amount of oil that it is going to pump, about a 50% increase. Um, and uh, this uh, this comes, why this is interesting, aside from the fact that it will obviously relieve pressure on oil prices uh, in the United States, uh, which is good news for everybody here and good news for suffering Democrats and the suffering Biden administration. Um, but it comes as we are hearing talk of a trip by President Biden to the Middle East, which was first floated as a he that he was going to Israel. Then they kind of dropped that he was maybe going to go to Saudi Arabia also. <clears throat> and I smell a rat. I don't smell a rat because it's fine, but that uh, Biden got no reason to go to Israel right now. Uh, there's 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 nothing going on there except a kind of political stalemate standoff situation uh, and that basically this is all about behind the scenes negotiations with the Saudis and why would be negotiating behind the scenes with the Saudis we'd be negotiating behind the scenes with the Saudis because Mohammed bin Salman who runs uh, the kingdom um, has been in bad odor since the murder of um, Jamal Khashoggi the um, anti uh, the anti house of saud uh journalist and activist who uh wrote a few things for the washington post and was called some kind of a contributing correspondent and then was murdered in turkey at the saudi consulate um and then apparently shipped back in pieces and uh, the Democratic Party's position from that moment onward was that this, the the Saudi Arabia could no longer be dealt with as a as a member of the community of nations, um, <clears throat> and of course uh, now that there is this terrible problem with oil prices, we find out that maybe it's not the best idea to be on bad terms with the Saudis, particularly since the Saudis, of course, have become a bulwark in the region against Iran, which is another thing we can talk about why that would be troubling to the Biden administration and has become the the behind the scenes leading figure in the rapprochement between Israel and uh, the Arab states that have for 70 years swore of uh, swore themselves to its destruction. Key American foreign policy goal in the Abraham uh, by the Abraham Accords to uh, bring about a new relationship in the Middle East between Israel and its Arab neighbors. So Biden's going to Saudi Arabia, apparently, <clears throat> but didn't want people to know he was going to Saudi Arabia. And then I guess gets this um, because he's uh, going to do it. They then announced they were going to increase production. Matt Connetti, as a Biden observer, as a media observer, as a trenchant analyst of Washington's um, self-obsessed um, nonsense uh the 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 crocodile tears uh being shed over uh, a a journalist that no one had ever heard of until he was murdered please <coughs> expostulate for me well i think it's a, a big uh, reversal by the biden administration if um biden will be visiting uh, riyadh and with uh mbs um the crown prince of saudi arabia and it's a reversal that would um, come under intense pressure. You know, so Biden has spent the week um, uh, issuing two op-eds. Uh, the first was on his plan for inflation in the Wall Street Journal. 
Turns out there is no plan for inflation <laughs> other than um, uh, kind of delegating to the Federal Reserve to do something about it. And the second was uh, his plan in the New York Times for Ukraine. Turns out there's not really much of a plan there in Ukraine either. It's kind of kind of continue to send weapons, but not any weapons that would be able to strike uh, inside Russia and um, change the tide of the uh, of the war, which is uh, moving against Ukraine uh, in uh, in uh, the Donbass in the in the eastern part of the country. Uh, this move uh, to Saudi Arabia and the release of the OPEC oil would seem to be connected to both of those. Um, problems and op-eds. Uh, on the one hand, Biden has the domestic problem of inflation, which is killing him. He has a sub 35% approval rating on the economy. Um, on the other hand, uh, the war in uh, Ukraine is continuing. It's headed toward uh, a bloody war of attrition, and it has huge secondary effects, um, in particular on uh, food um, and uh, as well as energy. So this, I think, is kind of a forced retreat on the part of Biden uh, to um, try to make nice with the Saudis after spending the first two years of his presidency uh, criticizing uh, them on uh, the murder of Kogi, on uh, the war in Yemen, and really creating daylight between um, a, um, a, an, an unreliable ally of the United States for 90 years now, but also a um, necessary ally of the United States. And a changing ally. <clears throat> I mean, we are <clears throat> historic things have happened over the last 10 years that require a different American perspective on Saudi Arabia. It's just the, you know, I've said this before, uh, the subject of my, my bachelor's thesis was American relations with Saudi Arabia, which I wrote in 1982. Um, you know, if you had told me then or at any point in the 30 years subsequent to that, that I would be sitting here saying, what are you crazy? Of course, we need to have good relations with Saudi Arabia. I would have said you were out of your mind that, that of course, it was necessary to deal with Saudi Arabia, but that it was hostile to the United States. It was hostile to Israel. It had caused the most of the economic dislocations in the United States in the 1970s were caused by the Saudis. Um, in an act of, you know, almost unparalleled economic warfare. And, uh, and so uh, I, I find myself astonished that I'm sitting here going, yay, go, let's have a good, let go touch the orb again. Let's have Biden touch the orb the way that's, that's the, the real way question. Trump touched the orb. Yeah. Um, but there we are, Noah. I applaud the dispassion with which you've approached this topic. I am far more energized and, and, um, uh, dismayed by this pattern of events that we've seen over the last year. Axios reported in early March, the first week of March, that the Biden administration was preparing for a potential visit to Saudi Arabia to, quote, repair relations and convince the kingdom to pump more oil. Uh, in the interim, you had this whole outraged class uh, of journalists, maybe about 500 people who lobbied against this. And it didn't happen. And Americans have paid dearly for that lethargy. Also in the interim, the Biden administration relieved sanctions pressure on the Venezuelan regime in order to relieve some pressure at the pump on Americans. We haven't seen a lot of pressure relieved on the, for Americans, but we've seen the Maduro regime come in back from the cold, severely undermine the Biden administration's nominal support for Juan Guaido. Uh, the legitimate Venezuelan president, acknowledged now by both Democratic and Republican administrations. And their efforts to ramp up this production um, have run up against not only the lobbying from the journalist class and the progressive activist groups who have captured this administration, but also um, their efforts to, to end America's support for Saudi Arabia's war against an Iran-backed re rebellion on the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen. Um, the, this has severely undermined America's position internationally. Uh, it has upended its grand strategy in two distinct regions, vital regions, and it has cost you, dear listener, dearly in terms of capital. So while we can talk about this in sort of removed terms, uh, it's very personal for just about everybody who has lost a lot of income over the last couple of months. Abe, when the editor of Commentary Magazine, meaning me, says, let's get closer to Saudi Arabia. You know, 
that we're in a new world and that um, a serious foreign policy party or serious people who supposedly are serious about foreign policy can hinge the relationship between the United States and the number one um, pumper of the life's blood of the world economy can hinge on the admittedly uh, ghastly and unspeakable behavior of the regime toward this one critic. But that's one critic. This is a $22 trillion economy that, as Noah says, has been grievously disrupted uh, by this la the last six months and the incredible run-up in, in, in gas prices. The executive editor of Commentary Magazine, meaning me, <laughs> agrees with you. Um, and, and it is the very aspect of um, the change in Riyadh, by the way, that Jamal Khashoggi objected to. Uh, he was very critical of of the, the, the Saudis. This was this was when it was just sort of being telegraphed um, of of the of the Saudis' turn toward uh, warming relations with Israel. Uh, and look, it's it goes without saying that um, his massacre is unspeakable. Um, he was a very strange type of journalist, though. It's a strange type of, of especially a, str a strange type of, of journalist to embrace in the U.S. He was uh, sympathetic and supportive of Hamas. Uh, he had uh, Cutter uh, um, sort of um, shaping, his, shaping his prose. What's that? Financial ties, right? Uh, worse, but I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, he was yeah. sort of working for the... Yeah. For the Atari public the, affairs, the Atari's, yeah, yeah, and and you know, which is a lot an Iran backed sponsors, if if I recall correctly, or a, at least a, an a Iranian, line. at least a line, a line, yeah, on yeah. Iran sponsored, yeah. Well, and and the very journalist uh, class that Noah talks about are the ones who have also been eagerly supporting the Biden administration's attempt to uh, enter into another nuclear deal with Iran, uh, a regime that kills people all the time for being gay. Holds um, Americans I mean, hostage. And we yes. can have two tracks on which we can negotiate these two very distinct separate issues and not conflate them and sacrifice American national interest in the process. I just I just find the I, I mean, I use the word crocodile tears and I, I don't want I, I don't want to sound heartless about the, the gruesome and horrible murder of Khashoggi. But again, I mean, to have people who claim to be serious uh, observers of foreign policy uh, believing that it, that the um, relation between Mohammed bin Salman and Jamal Khashoggi should be uh, more determinative of geopolitical American behavior in the Middle East than other than 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 the fact. <laughs> That the Saudis pump oil and that we buy it, and or that we or that the world needs that flow. Uh, Matt, well, I just it, it, it's it strikes me that you know Biden is kind of forced into this move uh, for ideological reasons, which is to say he has been relying on places like Venezuela or um, appealing to OPEC, as Noah said, for months to increase the uh, energy production overseas because he does everything he can to limit domestic energy production, right? And so his environmental goals are forcing him to uh, work with some of the worst regimes in uh, the world. And if he only had, uh, oh, you know, um, dumped overboard his ideological commitment to the green energy transition, which, you know, like Brazil is the country of the future. It's always the country of the future. You know, <laughs> the green energy transition is, is will always be transiting there. We'll never, never actually get to reach the goal, um, especially because of the progressives opposition to nuclear energy. But um, he, he has no one else to blame but himself. And think about it. You know, he uh, Biden has been releasing barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. He's been begging OPEC to increase production. 
been trying to work with Maduro in Venezuela, the price of gas continues to rise. So I'm, I mean, this is a big uh, production increase that OPEC seems to be um, uh, telegraphing. So maybe it would have some effect. There's a missing element here too, John, which is refinery capacity. You know, when you have the plunge that we had in the oil price at the beginning of the pandemic, all those refineries shut down and it takes time to refinery capacity back online too. So I, I think this is a, uh, it's a, it's a desperate move that is also a recognition of, of just domestic political reality, as well as the geopolitical realities. It's forcing him into all Biden, into all of these uh, contortions. I mean, you're right to bring up Iran, right? I mean, the idea that they are still trying to appease the Iranians after 18 months going nowhere is insane to me. It's just insane. And it, it's that type of ideological commitment that just continues to wreak havoc um, on uh, America and the world. I mean, it also makes no sense anymore. We said, we said this three months ago when the war in Ukraine started. I mean, Russia is still a major theoretical player in any Iran deal. We cannot be involved in a negotiation with Russia over its stewardship of Iranian nuclear assets when we have the Russian regime hinting that it might be using nuclear weapons against the West. Here's, like, how complicated. This is not, yes. <laughs> Here's how complicated this gets. One of the reasons JP, JCPOA part two hit the skids after the Iranian or rather the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that Russia, as you say, is a critical partner in this deal. They take all Iran fissile material in the last deal and theoretically in this deal, but they don't want to flood the market with Iranian oil because that would reduce the price of oil, which they need desperately in order to fund the war effort. So then the Russians started to get a little queasy about this sort of thing. And, and briefly to, to Matt's point, because it's so crucial, the, they still are hostage to this environmental uh, movement in part because they refuse to budge off these executive orders, these day one executive orders targeting the fossil fuel industry, limiting, uh, eliminating the possibility of new leases on federal land, um, mandating that every federal, federal agency not do any activity that could subsidize fossil fuel producers, which is sort of a vague category, but includes a whole lot of activities. Um, a serious administration would lift this yesterday. They would they say, oh, it wouldn't have any impact on prices. Nonsense. The price of crude is a futures market. Any signal that suggests the future will have more supply in it will reduce pressure on the price. You know, you keep saying that they're they're held hostage, but you know, you're not held hostage when you believe something. I mean, you're only held hostage if you don't believe something, but you feel like you have to pay obeisance. Well, if Joe Biden's it. going to, to Saudi Arabia, then he didn't really believe this sort of high dudgeon garment rending that goes on in the press over Saudi Arabia's conduct here. Okay, I'm not talking about the con I'm actually talking now about the oil per the whole issue that Matt raises about and what you just raised about the desperate efforts to curtail oil exploration and new oil production in the United States that was the saving, that was the thing that saved the United States, the economy of the United States in the wake of the meltdown was the hydraulic fracturing revolution and the fact that we had an entirely new uh, export. We opened up an entirely new export market. We made billions and billions and billions of dollars multiple billions of dollars of infrastructure investment and capital investment in this entirely new field that was, you know, incredibly successful and changed the dynamic of the, of the world oil and gas business. And we are, you know, and then this, and, and Democrats got to sort of stand on the sidelines and say, no, 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 this isn't good. This isn't good. Don't do it. Although of course the Obama administration was like, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. We, we, we really increased the level of oil production. Don't do it. It's really bad. We're not going to let you do it on public lands. We're not doing it on public lands. Do it in the Marcellus Shale. It's fine. But don't do it on public lands. You know, like that. Like they, they got both sides of it. And, uh, and, you know, then we find ourselves in this position, which is we are one of the reasons that the Saudis took the turn toward Israel is that the power of the oil weapon was cut in half or worse. And it led MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, to look at this and say, we're going to need other forms of business to pursue 
I'm 30 years old. We're going to need other forms of business to pursue. You know, the uh, our 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 dinosaur oil deposits are not going to carry the day 20 years from now. There's all this other stuff coming everywhere, not just in the United States, but hydraulic fracturing. We talked about this yesterday on the podcast that there is it's too expensive really to harvest, but there's a gigantic fracking field in the Donbass. You know, as it's 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 right now it's really prohibitively expensive to get it, but there's a huge one in Israel, a huge one in the Mediterranean, they're all over the place. And so MBS looked at this and said, we need to diversify. We need to become a different kind of economy. And that means we got to change our relationship with the one country in the entire region that seems to know what it's doing in the modern 21st century economy. This is this. We're cutting off our nose to spite our face. Every aspect of this was a positive for the United States and the and Democrats because they are they are in the in the grips of this irrational idea that um, oil and gas exploration are evil. Um, are are have have gone you know and uh, but I mean Biden believes this. They all believe it. Do we have any indication that they don't believe it? I'm sure they believe it. By yeah. the way, the same the same goes for the withdrawal from Afghanistan, right? I mean, this was a sort of uh, a, a point of um, great sort of ideological importance about ending the wars, you know, ending the the the, the forever wars and and, and the sort of final, finally putting the 9/11 Bush security state, you know, cowboy, cowboy America era to bring it to a close. Um, horrible practical consequences and fallout from that. Aside that, from the, aside from the, the fact that it went miserably right. itself. As our historian of conservatism, Matt, um, I would say the general gut root idea in conservatism is that change can always and probably is mostly for the worse. That if you start for, if your proposition is, you better be really careful of that change because when you change, things are more likely to get worse than they are to get better. That is conservatism in the nuttiest of nutshells, right? So if, if, I'm, if I'm right about that, that's where if you're Biden and you're like, we've had all these policies and here's the Trump economy, which is going pretty well, let's change them. Or, you know, we, uh, we have this uh, condition in Afghanistan. We're kind of in a stalemate. Got a few thousand people there. Uh, no one's really dying, but, you know, it's been 20 years. What could be worse than pulling out? Well, guess what? It's pre- it was pretty easy to guess what could be. They don't. That is part of the ideological crisis of progressivism is that this, and then we can get to baby formula in a second. This is where the rubber meets the road, which is when you decide that you are going to change things or intervene or something, you should be doing some kind of an assessment of what the consequences of those changes will be before you just hurdle headlong into them because that is where biden is in 2022 it's like pulling out a jenga piece right yeah well and i guess it's because from the progressive viewpoint it's not really the results that matter so much as it is the intentions right the if the virtuous intentions matter more so we are virtuous in um at uh our clean energy transition uh because oil and gas are dirty and bad and destroying the, the planet uh, we're virtuous in our decision uh, no longer to prosecute criminals in America's cities <laughs> because of the legacies of uh, slavery and Jim Crow and uh, r- racism in our society. Uh, and, you know, we're virtuous uh, to uh, leave Afghanistan because um, 20 years uh, the, uh, of money and lives uh, that have been spent there doesn't seem to come to any good. Um and so uh, whatever happens, you know, will be uh, our, our virtue is will remain intact. I think you get, John, to a real 
just dividing line between a, the small c conservative disposition and the capital P progressive uh, view. If I can just say on, on a historian's note, um, as it happens, just yesterday, I reread Ronald Reagan's um, uh, launch speech for his 1980 campaign, which he delivered over television uh, in 1979. And the parallels were eerie. Uh, he, he, he starts immediately with inflation. And part of his critique of the Carter administration is it's energy policy. And he has paragraphs and paragraphs saying all it would take is a president to get rid of the regulations, to decontrol the energy industry, uh, and to embrace energy exploration and production. Um, and then, of course, the, the, he moves on from there from, to the, uh, from energy to the danger from Russia, which is, which is another story that's also relevant. But I guess what I drew from it was uh, these problems can be fixed. Uh, but they just rely, they, they require a, um, a, a leader who is less interested in virtuous intentions and more interested in actual results. And, okay. and we know how to do it. We know how okay. to do it. We just won't. I want to tie this to the baby formula story. But first, uh, let me remind you that uh, you probably spend more time every day in your office chair than in your car or in your bed. That's why it is so important to invest in the right chair to spend those hours with the right level of support and comfort to get the most productivity out of your day. X chair has made my time at my desk not only more productive, but um, it's become honestly my favorite place to sit for any reason. Not only does X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL offer the ultimate customized support, but my X chair can even give me a massage or heat up or cool down. And now thanks to X-Chair's new FS360 armrests, I can even adjust my armrest to the perfect position. All these unique X-Chair features help the hours at my desk fly by in complete comfort. That's why I love my X-Chair. So go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-Chair for $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month, xchaircommentary.com. Okay, so Biden had baby formula manufacturers at the White House to talk about the crisis in baby formula. And he said, uh, I didn't think anybody anticipated the impact of one facility, of the Abbott facility. Uh, once we learned the extent of it and how broad it was, we kicked everything into gear. Then Caitlin Collins of CNN uh, said, you know, the manufacturers had said that they knew immediately what the impact of shutting down the uh, Abbott Labs uh, baby formula factory would be. And Biden said they did, uh, but I didn't. Um, so uh, White House uh, uh, National Economic Council Director Brian Deese had to go out, as usual, and do damage control by saying, uh, it was Abbott's fault. Uh, we should, we should, I should, I should specify that uh, Abbott Nutrition closed down its baby formula processing facility as a result of FDA action against it and um, uh, claiming uh, unsafe or unsanitary conditions. And so they said, look, if, you know, it, the, the, the criticism was so hard that they had to shut the, the, the facility down in order to meet administration demands uh, or executive branch demands on, on dotting I's and crossing T's on this. And uh, Dietz's answer as, as to why this was necessary is that it took too long for Abbott to agree to a consent degree. And once it was clear that that facility was not going to be able to come back online sooner, then it was clear we were going to have a more significant challenge. At that point, the president was informed. So let's let's break this. You should down. add, though, this is all retconning <clears throat> because baby formula shortage predates the Abbott closure, and it was impossible to ignore because it was written about in the New York Times, in the Wall Street Journal in January. It was a subject of crisis proportion local coverage in local media outlets in San Antonio and Knoxville and Columbus. It was something that was bubbling up before 
Abbott Labs was forced to close for a prolonged period that defies explanation. Uh, so one even more... this line of questioning is, yeah. is just a, is retro, re, retroactively conditioning you to believe that this just sort of happened in February. He did. Well, no, and no one believes it. But go ahead. There, there's just there's just one more detail that should be added. Also, so the White House press secretary, uh, Karine Jean Pierre, came out yesterday and, and and contradicted all this. And said said the White House has been working uh, around the clock since February on the on the shortage. Right, but then she, I think she was asked, you know, well, why wasn't it? brought to the president's attention then until April. And her answer was hilarious as I read it over my coffee this morning. She said, well, the truth is we have all these other crises that we've, <laughs> we've had to pay attention to. So we couldn't bring this one up to his attention. So th this is the state of the Biden White House. Everything is going so wrong everywhere that uh, right. this this new, this it's not a new crisis as Noah points out, but this extremely important crisis of the baby formula shortage wasn't even kicked up to him by their own admission because, well, they're worried about all these other things. At the meeting, Biden threw the ultimate grand slam pitch to the baby formula manufacturers. He asked Robert Cleveland, a senior vice president with Rickett, if the company was surprised the Abbott closure had had this profound effect immediately and cleveland responded we were we were aware of the general impact this would have sir from the moment that the recall was announced uh this is after the the, the facility was shut not only was the facility shut down to clean it but stuff that had been shipped out by the facility was recalled so there were it was two phases of regulatory control uh, asserted uh, by the FDA. From the moment that the recall was announced, we reached out immediately to retail partners like Target and Walmart to tell them this is what we think will happen. And then, of course, as the recall has gone on, more specific impacts have been felt. We've learned and adjusted to those as well. But no, we knew from the very beginning this would be a very serious event. Now, uh, that's when Biden last month said if we'd been better mind readers, I guess we could have uh, known that there were going to be shortages. Now, let's this get this dovetails with what we were talking about before. Uh, so somebody comes back and says, you know, we 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 toured the Abbott facility and there was, you know, a there was a pen sitting on the on the table next to where they make the baby formula. It's not safe, um, you know, or whatever they said, you know, that we saw we saw some, you know, unsanitary things going on. Well, there was an so, outbreak. Uh, there was an outbreak of uh, people were getting sick from bacterial infection. And they said they traced it back to these producers. Okay, um, but it wasn't just that. So it was a voluntary the facility. recall. The FDA. <laughs> okay, the recall and the in shutdown the... are two right. different are two different things. They pushed Abbott into a consent decree that effectively forced Abbott to shut the plant down to get to bring it up to their specifications. Okay, look, we have health and safety regulations for a reason. We want to make sure that uh, producers of things that we put in our bodies uh, are not uh, uh, callous or flip or, you know, or, or careless and all of that. However, here's what you do when you're a serious person and you run a government and you're in this position, which is somebody comes back and says, we need to, we need to go at Abbott hard. This is really dangerous. And then you say, okay, so let's game this out. Uh, we're going to Abbott's going to have to shut their facility on what happens then to baby formula manufacturer in the United States. Maybe what we should do is while we're doing this, uh, loosen some of the uh, import uh, rules so that we can bring in baby formula from Germany and elsewhere to cover the shortfalls. But apparently neither of these conversations happen. Why? Because of what Matt said, which is that the virtue is in the shutdown. The virtue is in treating Abbott as though it is an adversary uh, and that you as a regulator are basically a cop looking to find that they're picking their feet in Poughkeepsie and you are going to go at them. And the, 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 the two steps that are supposed to be taken, which is if you do X as government, Y will happen. Is that something that you are willing to shoulder, the inconvenience, the difficulty, the disruption, because what you're doing is so important and there, is all, there are almost no ideas in the Democratic Party that would lead them to say, we can't shut this down. You know what? In fact, 
maybe a few people, it's, it's a classic cost benefit analysis. Even you would say maybe a few people are getting sick, but if 5 million people can't get bait or, you know, 2 million people can't get baby formula, that's 2 million against five people who've gotten bacterial infections. Matt. I just, uh, as you're speaking, John, I was remembering that political article that came out during uh, the last quarter of 2020, where it was describing the Biden A-team and all of these uh, brilliant technocrats, you know, who had been hardened by the Obama years and they're ready to come in and take over after all the mess that Trump and the Trump administration had made of things. And uh, you look at that piece now and it's almost though, you know, fate or God read the piece and said, oh, well, I'll show you what. And this A-team is completely disintegrated before our eyes. It also reminded me of that spate of articles that came out during um, the George W's second term on, you know, concert, why conservatives can't govern. Uh, these conservatives can't just, uh, they, conservatives have this, you know, um, built-in animus toward government and hence uh, they can't do anything right. That was the logic behind why Democrats could never have a Tea Party, because they right. were simply too competent. Right, too competent, too, too managerial. They were right. too, too committed rational. to public service. Right. Well, I mean, you can you could write the today the, the essays why progressives can't govern, but more 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 than in assigning blame to an ideological persuasion. It's these progressives can govern <laughs> because there's just that one, the, the leadership at the top is um, is absent. Uh, and two, uh, they they are um, in many ways fighting the last war. Right. So if you get, so if you think about the two trillion dollar um, American rescue plan, even though Larry Summers was saying, guys, this is going to unleash inflation. You're going to over, you're overfeeding the economy by this bill. They said, no, no, no. Remember, the stimulus was too small in 2009. Right. And uh, if you look at uh, and of course, we know what happened next. We have we have this 40 year uh, record inflation. If you look at um, the border. Fighting the last war, Trump, Trump is a nativist. Trump hates Mexicans. Trump, anything Trump did on immigration, we have to go in the opposite direction. Oh, and now we have this <laughs> humanitarian disaster on the southern border. Um, uh, even even the the realities of uh, of policing and crime, it's uh, it's kind of stuck in the Ferguson moment, 2014. You know the underlying copies of Ta-Nehisi Coates's collected works. And, oh, wait, oh, oh, and then they look up and they see this murder spike uh, going throughout American cities, which of course affects black Americans the most, right? Um, so it, 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 this current administration, because of their vaunted credentials have actually made them uh, less capable of governing. Same thing, uh, just to Abe's earlier point, with Afghanistan. Why did Biden pull out of Afghanistan? Because no one listened to him during the Obama years. No one, Obama would put him outside and he'd go up and tell Obama, but the generals play you, Barack, you know? And, and uh, no one listened to him on anything. And so, gosh darn it, he's president now and he's going to pull out these troops uh, come hell or high water. And hell came. So it's this particular group, I think, uh, that is that is um, responsible for just this complete collapse of governing capacity in the United States. Uh, and I laugh because it is so absurd and so frightening. I mean, I, I think that's a brilliant analysis. Again, just to step back from the specifics of the blame of the Biden people to a more to a, a larger framework, the if if the. Um, cost-benefit analysis that I'm talking about would be at the heart of any well-wrought conservative governance in which you say, okay, there are things government needs to do, but we need to do a cost-benefit analysis. So if they do X, Y is going to happen. How do we mitigate that effect? Or do we say the cost is too great? So the right has cost-benefit analysis and the left has environmental impact statements. Environmental, are, environmental impact statements are cost-benefit analyses, but they function in reverse. The idea is, what will this do 
to the environment broadly understood that uh, that justifies uh, will the economic, the positive economic effects, can they possibly justify the harm that might be done to the environment, which is a very abstract concept, the environment, um, and that so liberals, progressives, and right love the environmental impact statement because it is their their presumption that all things being equal, very little should happen because it will have terrible economic consequences conservatives like the cost benefit analysis because it says you better be careful about interfering with things that are in good work seem to be in relatively good working order because you just can't be sure that calamities aren't going to happen obviously the biden administration didn't want there to be a calamitous shortage of baby formula it's about the worst possible story I mean, it's funny because it's like the 2010 version of Deepwater Horizon, right? It's like there's a hole in a in a pipe 5,000 feet under the under the Gulf of Mexico that is spewing out oil. Nobody can. I mean, how, what are we supposed to do about it? Then it's like, oh look, nobody can get baby formula. Oops, you know. So you're saying you the know, next, it's like next if you could manufacture. For- if you could manufacture, if you were like Lee Atwater and you could manufacture the story that you wanted to run on, uh, have <laughs> percolating around the midterm elections as as you're sort of like running, you, you couldn't invent it. it like you, you couldn't, no, no one could even have conceived of such a thing. Babies are starving because of the Biden administration. Mothers are driving hours to find things to feed their babies. And then the response is this let them eat cake response. So drink mother's milk. You know, that's okay. Anyway, but, you know, we should just add very on a serious note. It's getting dramatically worse, too. It's it's not as if the the shortage is staying where it is. supplies are dropping and dropping yeah because government intervention cannot fix a shortage production fixes a shortage it is the it is the removal of government's intervention intervention that can fix a shortage it is relaxing rules and regulations that can fix a shortage like the import rules on german baby formula which apparently it's harder to do than you would have thought I mean, they can write, you know, regulations that that basically uh, uh, eliminate, you know, enormous amounts of student debt with a snap of a finger, apparently. But they can't just say, you know what, there's an emergency. Let the German baby formula in. We haven't even talked about the student loan thing, which is a which is a more interesting story than than uh, or is a more complicated story um, than people because I think what they've done here is very clever as a first move, which is that they're only going to make whole people who were conned by this for-profit uh, college system that collapsed, and therefore, you know, people didn't get degrees, and they and they, you know, they they they're still in debt for paying for this for-profit system. I think it's very smart because it's like a camel's nose under the tent because. You know, a year from now, there'll be all these stories about these people who were, you know, made whole and their lives are just made so much better because Biden intervened. And then when you want to start expanding this out to others, you will have a success story that is impossible to duplicate because this is the only one of these things of its kind. But um, anyway, so just to give them credit for some political uh, um What else should we talk about? Don't everybody jump in at once. <laughs> Do we have anything else to talk about? The Queen. The, the Queen is just so overwhelmingly negative that it's hard to break it up into discrete bits, John. Yes. That's the okay. problem. That's why Fair we've enough. been stunned into silence here on yes. the podcast. Well, you know, I mean, this is so we have now done uh, three podcasts this week and a couple of last week. And um, I was thinking, oh, my God, like, do really we're just going to sort of go at Biden over and over and over again? And of course, then I thought, well, the entire conversation, political conversation of the United States for four years was about Trump. 
So let it let let there be political conversation about Biden. I mean, he sort of benefited for a while from the whole point is like, oh, thank God we don't have Biden at the center of our consciousness anymore. Like we don't have to hear from Biden every two hours. All right. Well, here's- now we're getting three. Now we're getting three op eds a week from Biden. So I don't know, you know, why that's any better. Three bad op eds a week. At least, you know, at least Trump was outrageous, and therefore you got a little, you know, you got a little kind of like putting your tongue on a nine volt battery charge. You know, for, the, the entertainment America. factor is is missing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we've been talking about sure. a lot of issues that cut against the Democrats. Why don't we talk about some that cut against Republicans? We've got a couple of new polls out that suggest. Um, the issue set that Democrats are going to hang their hat on to try to mitigate their losses in November are resonating, notably gun control, um, Americans to the tune of, I forget what the poll number was, but it was a significant amount of Americans, it's a, close to two thirds, who described themselves as being favorable towards some gun restrictions, some gun legislation, somewhere something, something, somebody do something. Dovetails with this uh, Wall Street Journal NORC poll out this morning showing 55% of Americans now identify as pro-choice. It is the highest percentage since 1995. It is obviously a response to this leaked Supreme Court draft. And we're going to get that decision this month, presumably. Um, And smart money is that it's going to at least resemble the Alito draft closely enough that this issue isn't going to go away. Um, to what extent is this resonating with voters? Don't really know, because the generic ballot in that very same poll remains unmoved. Uh, modest Republican advantage. Um, I don't know if I can game out which way this is going to go. My assumption is that the fundamentals of this election year have been baked in for the last you know, 18 months. And whatever happens in June uh, with gun control legislation, with this decision in the Supreme Court, um, I don't think it's going to change that dynamic, but maybe I'm wrong because the party in power is going to spend the next four and a half, five months pounding the table on this one every single day. Well, the, uh, the ultra MAGA thing doesn't seem to have really worked. It seems to me like they've dropped that. Maybe I'm not paying close enough attention, but I think, um, I think this week represented a, um, what's the new term, a vibe shift in the Biden administration, because you saw all these leaked stories about how angry the president is at uh, his aides and information isn't getting up to him and why I, I loved this one because it's exactly what Trump always complained about. Biden is saying, why aren't more people defending me on television? Um, and that's why he felt it necessary to kind of take the reins of his communication strategy and issue these uh, two op-eds um, again on inflation and the war, um, not on guns or uh, abortion. Um, so uh, it, we'll see if this new, this new latest strategy uh, works. I do think that um, uh, there will be candidates in some of the Senate races who tackled, who used the abortion issue. Um, but uh, Rui Teixeira of the Center for American Progress has a very interesting op-ed out on his um, liberal patriot substack this morning talking about, you know, um, the suburban voters are not necessarily what Democrats think they are, that um, many suburban voters uh, lack uh, a a four-year college degree. And um, in Rui points out that, just leave guns for a moment, but on the abortion issue, you see the polls that say, yeah, okay, I'm pro-choice. You see the polls saying, I reject the idea that the Supreme Court should overrule, overrule Roe. But then when you get, uh, as we always talk about, when you get to the details, um, the, the issue becomes a little bit more um, uh, 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 in play because Republican candidates can also attack the Democrats for kind of pro-choice extremism, which, which these same suburban voters uh, kind of blanch at as well. So um, I think these are worrying signs. You're right. There's something to be aware of, but I, I, I agree with you, Noah, that um, overall, I don't think it changes the trajectory of this election. Um, polling on guns has been very consistent over the last 15 to 20 years. Let's let's say 10 years. Let, let, let's localize it more, say, since the shooting of Gabby Giffords or Sandy Hook or something like that. 
ask people, and enormous numbers of people say they favor more restrictive gun policies. Break it down, and part of that is intensity among Democrats. That is that Democrats who used to be more split on, on, on guns as they were a more national party. Uh, so they represented people in all kinds of places, including the Dakotas. And, you know, I mean, we had Democrats in, you know, representing the Dakotas and Arkansas and all kinds of places where people had Pennsylvania, all kinds of places where people, New York, where had guns and hunted and stuff like that. So it was more like 60-40, 55-45 were for more restriction. Now it's like 90-10 among Democrats. And similarly, among Republicans, when Republicans were a more urban party, uh, it, it was more like 40-60, uh, you know, uh, for, you know, believing in more restrictive gun policies versus leaving them alone. And now among Republicans, I think it's like 80-20. So some of this is a partisan sort, and therefore the political effects are going to be limited because the intensity of feeling will be in places where the political alignments have already established themselves. I mean, there are a couple of swing states where guns may play a role, Pennsylvania being one of them, which is, of course, a fascinating split of a very rural state and a very urban state all at once. And of course, Ohio, where there is a tight as a tick Senate race, according to the first polling between J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan. Um, but people say they want more gun restrictions, but that doesn't mean they vote on gun restrictions and people vote against gun restrictions. They don't vote for gun restrictions as a, as a single issue. You know, the intensity issue is, is what, is what drives that. But the intensity issue in abortion is interesting in that sense, yeah. because the intensity has always favored, um, the restrictionist side of things uh, and this new polling this new round of polling suggests that that's flipped um, because of uh, general apprehension and anxiety over what the supreme court is going to do and an understanding in my view a proper understanding that there will be this bur burst of enthusiasm among pro-life uh, lawmakers to test the limits of this new regime in ways that will capture headlines uh, disproportionate wildly disproportionate to the enthusiasm on the other side. The other side is going to do as they tried to do in Congress uh, as much as they can to fund abortions up through the third trimester, literally up to birth. That will not get anywhere near the level of intense coverage that the press is going to devote to, say, uh, uh, Oklahoma, which will try to ban abortions almost outright. Um, and that that may favor Democrats to a degree that I think we could underestimate. Abe? Yeah, I... I there's a sense I get, you know, talk about guns and, and Roe. I, I, I mean, I've some skepticism about the numbers, but you, 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 let's stipulate that they're that that the, the polling is accurate. I still think we're in a place now nationally since covid, since the rise in crime, since rising inflation, that voters are thinking about what's happening in their lives well, and that is and, a really important point and and so so i think your 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 their wish lists and their preferences outside of that i just don't see that penetrating in the way that people's everyday lives are 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 are, are going to i mean look that i just think that's a very important point because you know in the end a million or a million two a million three abortions are, are are performed a year and there are you know i don't know 60 million women of childbearing age or maybe more i mean maybe maybe it's closer to 100 which has million. been declining for decades by right. the way like the lowest yeah. point in 1920 but, but, but my point is that the people who avail themselves of abortions represent one in a hundred of the you know of people at any given moment even if they want them or they don't want them or something like that but you know if somebody if some if a house is burgled on your block then crime is a crime is right in the forefront of your consciousness the you know when you go fill up a tank inflation is the forefront of your consciousness when you and so culture war issues are much better right when other things are kind of stilled and when there aren't these direct effects on every people's literal freedom of movement freedom of uh travel stuff like that um 
I, I do think yeah. that's why um, Noah's observation about um, Oklahoma is important because I think you would see the pro-choice cause rise in priority and intensity only after blanket bans. Now, mm-hmm. not in Oklahoma. I, I think that right. it's probably in tune with public sentiment in Oklahoma. Yeah. But let's say that um, uh, Florida, for example, um, decides to completely outlaw abortion. You might see in the next cycle, Democrats who say, vote for me. I want to modify this law. I want to carve out more space. And that would help Democrats. But I think you need to have the overreach happen first. Right. Well, so, it has. Right. I mean, the Oklahoma case is. is I know, but not, not in Oklahoma. There's not a base disagree with, of. Op- I, I very much disagree with that because I was you made think to Democrats care about Georgia's in Oklahoma this year. I was made to care about Georgia's voting law. I was made to care about Florida's education law. I am okay, made to care about the social covenants that exist in states I will not ever live in. I'm not talking about the media. Bad. I'm not talking about no, the media. Ma- I'm talking about actual voters in these places. Yeah. So and by the way, if Georgia does that. There might then be in the next cycle a constituency that wants to liberalize abortion laws, particularly in the first trimester, which, by the way, is what everybody thinks has been the case for the last 50 years. And they think that falsely. Right. So the whole point of, of returning the issue to the states is to allow this process to work itself out. It's not going to be pretty. It's going to hurt Republicans at some point. It's going to hurt Democrats at some point. Okay. So, but, so uh, we, we have a disagreement here because Noah's saying that Democrats might be able to successfully nationalize the abortion issue based on behavior in individual states. And Matt, you're saying that what you need is Oklahoma, Georgia, and other places to do this. And then let's see, if not Oklahoma, but say states that are swingier, Georgia, Florida, Florida even Texas, which is swingier Texas, than it used to yeah. be. Um, where you could then get because the actual legislative and and executive actions will be state and not federal, right? That's the whole point of the bill is that it will return the power to the you know to legislatures and state governments. Can it be nationalized in places where that probably isn't going to happen? That's, look, maybe that, it, I, I think it could be nationalized under conditions of peace and prosperity. When, well, that's what when, Abe's saying, right? When the election would be taking, yeah. when the election would be taking under uh, in a circumstances where cultural, cultural and social issues do climb to the fore because people aren't worried about their economic livelihoods or um, war uh, spreading from uh, Ukraine. But um, I mean, I, in I mean, these circumstances, baby, I think baby. it will be at the state level. And you can add baby formula to the list of or baby of, yeah, formula, everyday or, problems, right. or murder and just right. crime, right? I mean, right. So, but, guns, but I do think, I think it's coming. It's yeah. just not, just not yet. But I mean, I think if we if we then sort of take a step back and look at 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 at, at gun, in other words, everyone goes, "Oh my God, this is so horrible! This is the most horrible thing." These schools, these kids are going into these schools; they're shooting children. You know, we got to do something about it. But are, are people really worried that it's going to happen? I mean, maybe they're worried it's going to happen in their schools. I, I I don't know. I mean, you have every year one or two horrible incidents. And there are 135,000 public schools in the United States. So maybe they apply this to their own personal experience and say, we've got to make sure that males under 21 can't get their hands on assault rifles the way that they can get their hands on. They can't they can't get their hands on handguns. Right. You can't buy a handgun in the United States if you're under 21. You can't buy a rifle. So, you know, that that is that's, I think, the focus of an interesting discussion right but and i think there's bipartisan potential there right there's bipartisan potential there and with the famous red flag laws that we're now talking about and there are conversations going on it will be interesting to see because if republicans are smart and they're not uh because i i i do believe that the idea that you know you can certainly have limitations on the absolute right of gun ownership like there's limitations on speech as amber heard just learned to her detriment you are not allowed to slander somebody freedom of speech does not give you the right to defame or slander someone 
And we we've already established the proposition that you have a right to bear arms, but that, you know, children can't own a gun and that you can restrict uh, handgun ownership under 21. So you can do all this other stuff. If Republicans were smart, they would maybe restrict handgun ownership under 21. California tried it. It was declared unconstitutional. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The Brady bill. Wait one second. I'm sorry. Am I am I? I thought this too. Unconstitutional. Under 21 gun sales. Oh, I'm um, sorry. I'm sorry. Waiting. waiting. Returned in May. Okay. Waiting. Waiting period. I'm sorry. I mean, uh, it's thorny. This is a constitutional right. It is inviolable in certain ways. Well, I mean, as I say, so is freedom of speech. But you can you can't own it. You cannot own an automatic. No one in the United States can own an automatic uh, machine can, can own a machine gun. Machine guns are outlawed. Machine guns. They've been outlawed since 1934, I believe. Um, and the uh, Brady, Brady bill puts a five day waiting period. I'm sorry. I, 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 I misstated. Uh, anyway, whatever. So I'm just saying, can you restrict gun ownership? Yes, in some ways you can. And we have history of restricting gun ownership. And if Republicans were politically smart, uh, they might consent to a little bit of this on the grounds that, you know, what Democrats don't want for there to be bipartisan agreement on certain gun legislation, because then they're doing incremental things instead of banning guns outright. You have Beto O'Rourke, who is running in Texas, saying he wants to confiscate all guns. Now, I don't know if he's an idiot, or I know he said this in 2019 when he was running for president, so maybe he has to say it again. I don't know if he's stupid or if he's visionary and he understands that the changing politics in Texas and he's young, maybe in 10 years, he'll be president under the, on, on a confiscation platform. Well, it's interesting, John, there's, there is one Democrat who does seem interested in bipartisan gun legislation and that's Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who seems and he just gave a recent quote where he said, look, you know, after Sandy Hook, um, I would have wanted, uh, you know, the full background checks and uh, kind of uh, banning outright the, um, the AR-15 class of weapon. But now I just want something. And uh, if he he's someone also who, uh, whether realistically or not, is thinking about 2024 and 2028. Mm-hmm. And if he could reach an agreement with with enough Republicans to get some legislation uh, that addresses this issue, I think it'd be a real victory for, well, one, for America, uh, and two, for him. So there, I've, I've been struck by um, actually the openness of uh, some of the Democrats uh, to, to, to working with Republicans. Now, maybe that's just the constraints of an election year where they don't, you know, they don't want to be seen as going after the guns because they understand that that will motivate a lot of voters against mm-hmm. them. Uh, but uh, maybe there is, uh, after the horror uh, of last week, uh, there is actually um, a kind of a well-intentioned effort to figure out some steps that we can agree on that could reduce this, uh, the chances of this happening uh, on the margin. I mean, where this ties into abortion, I would say, is the following, which is that what, what is better for a party fighting a culture war, to win or to lose? I mean, we, there's a presumption that Republicans have winning or conservatives winning uh, uh, on the Dobbs kit, winning uh, this 50-year argument about Roe will then go on the march. And, you know, this is, you know, they will just be, you know, beside themselves with drunk on power and try to make sure that no one ever has an abortion again and all that. I mean... When you win things, you kind of some of the, you know, some of the stuff that it motivates you, which is rage, kind of the the balloon punctures a little bit. And similarly, on guns, if there's a little bit of legislation here or there, you succeed. You've said for 30 years you want some change, and you get Obama said you need to do something, do anything. So they do something or they do anything. Doesn't that wet the appetite? Doesn't that take guns away from Democrats as a potentially potent issue? Do they want to win on this? I mean, I'm not, I think in policy terms, serious people might want to win on it. I, I, it's just, 
in both of these cases, we are we are we may be seeing shift abortion. We're certainly seeing a once in a half century shift that is going to have very long term political consequences that we cannot possibly game out. We just don't know. And, you know, and so it could be bad. It could be good. It could be good here. It could be bad there. It could be good for Democrats here. It could be good for Republicans there. It could change alliances. It could it could create different fissures in different places. It could break parties up. I mean, we just we just don't know. But you don't have a change this huge without all kinds of interesting ancillary effects that are, you know, that are not predictable, I would say. Anyway, everyone's got to go out and buy and or go to go close this window and open a window at Amazon and buy Matt Condetti's book, The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. We have a symposium on the book uh, in our current issue, which is online at commentary.org. Uh, seven, I think it's seven writers uh, reflecting on the themes and ideas uh, in Matt's remarkable book. Uh, so I commend that to you, as well as the tome itself, as I say, available at your local bookseller, as Noah's book, The Rise of the New Puritans, will be available at the end of the month and is available for pre-order right now. Available now. All available podcast now. No listeners. Rothman. Buy them together. Buy them together. Buy them together. Depending on you. Yes. Show your strength. And buy them multiple times. Yes. (laughs) Buy them for your friends, for your families, for the abortionists and gun controllers in your life. That was a weird thing to say. Okay. Anyway, that proves we've gone on too long. So, Matt Conetti, thank you very much. Thanks for for joining us today. And for uh, Abe and and Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the camera burning.